Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we come to your word that you would be pleased by your spirit to give us a fresh sight of the power of the cross. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think as Reformed Christians, it's really easy for us to take grace for granted. Uh, we live our lives knowing that we're not saved by works. We, we know that you don't need to be a good person to come to church. We know we don't need to do good things to be accepted by God. And we know that all we need to do is repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus and we will be saved. And to be honest, it's almost too good to be true, isn't it? But for many people around the world, it is a truth that they still don't know. Uh, the number of times I've said to someone around the village or the valley or a friend, you know, why don't you come to our church? Pop in and say hello. And they say, oh, mate, if you come to our church, the walls would fall in. If I was to come to your church, the walls would fall in or the roof would fall in or, you know, you'll never get me there. Uh, there's that idea that you've got to get your life in order before you can come to church. But we know that's not the case. I wonder if you've had people say that to you at all. I wonder if it's even possible that you once thought that. But this is not the way that God works in the world. We know we're not saved by works. You don't need to be a good person to come to church. You don't need to do good things to be accepted by God. But millions and millions of people have not heard that before. And part of the problem is that until the 16th century, nearly everyone in the church thought it was only by doing good things for the church that you'd actually have any chance of avoiding hell. So what did they do? They gave whole big, huge amounts of their money to the church to try and win favour with God by winning favour with the priests. And if you have a wander around Europe and have a look at some of the extraordinary buildings and if you look at the breathtaking wealth of the Vatican, you'll see what you can do when you bribe people by offering salvation. It is against this dark backdrop of greed and guilt that the glorious light of the Reformation shines. Uh, today we celebrate Reformation Day. It's actually tomorrow, but uh, which is the same day as Halloween, the day before All Saints Day. And we celebrate Reformation Day because the Reformation was a time when we saw afresh the power of the cross. It was a time when an unknown monk by the name of Martin Luther was reading his Bible and he came across these verses. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Martin Luther understood that we are right in God's sight through faith, by believing. And this good news is the power of God. It completely changed the way that the world viewed grace. Grace was no longer a thing that the church handed out like lollies to nice people. Grace was now rediscovered as this simple and overwhelming gift of salvation by God. And in all of this, we saw that you're not saved by doing good stuff, not by works, but by faith, by simply believing. 
and just like toothpaste that can never really get put back inside the tube. This idea when it was out could never go away again. And Martin Luther risked his life to reform the church. And as the Reformation went from Europe to England, many people would be killed for this very truth. For the Reformation uncovered the glory of grace through the simplicity of faith. And by believing this gospel, people would experience the power of God. But how is it that believing a thing can rescue us from hell? How is it possible that by trusting a promise, we might have eternal life, eternal salvation? How is that possible? It's because of the power of the cross. Today is the third talk in our 32-week series on 1 Corinthians called The Loving Church. And last week we saw the importance of not forming factions behind different leaders in the church. Remember it? In Corinth, some of them said, I'm in Peter's club. Or another one said, I'm with the Apollos faction. Or some said, hey, I'm with the Paul party and so on. It was a very Corinthian kind of thing to do. It just seems in that society they loved getting separated into little cliques and then they'd cheer on their leader like they would be following a sporting team. But the Apostle Paul, who planted that church, heard about it and said, I'm not going to have a bar of that. That is not a Christian way to live. And to try and help them in their difficulty, and in fact, he preempted it. He said, I I didn't baptise many people at all because I didn't want people to say, oh, Paul baptised me, so I'm in his club. He didn't want that to be the case. And when he talked about that, it naturally segued into a discussion about something much, much more important than baptism. Here's the last verse from last week's passage. Verse 17 of chapter 1. For Christ didn't send me to baptise, but to preach the good news, and not with clever speech, for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. His mission, his main purpose, was to preach. This is what he told the Romans was the power of God. And the way we access the power of God is by hearing and believing that gospel, that good news. But as he speaks in, the, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, about the power, he's actually talking about what is at the heart of the gospel, and that is the cross of Christ. And to elaborate on that, we get the next seven verses, and that's what we're looking at today. It begins with verse 18. For he says, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. What does he do? Well, he says that he chose to avoid clever speech. He didn't want to use clever speech because somehow that would be weakening the power of the cross. You know what it's like when people say, if you've got a weak argument, then just shout a bit louder. (laughs) Or or maybe if you've got a, a difficult message, then... You bring in the spin doctors to make the awkward message into something that doesn't sound quite so bad, you know. We regret to inform you we've had a little bit of a security breach in our organisation, but isn't it great that when someone needs to know your licence and passport numbers, they can just Google it? A bit too soon, maybe. But the point is that Paul doesn't want to use clever speech because the gospel doesn't need it. You don't want to polish up something that is already so beautiful and so powerful and so good. Clever speech will rob the cross of its power. 
But why were people wanting to do this clever speech? What is it that they didn't have confidence in in the gospel? Well, it's because the message of the cross, Paul says, is foolish to those who are headed for its destruction. People who have not yet come to Christ think that what we believe is foolish. It's stupid. It's weak. It's offensive. Now, we think about the cross and we think of the nice symbol of Christianity. It's, it's something we wear on necklaces. We display it in church. We put it on the front of our Bibles. But when Paul was writing this letter to the church at Corinth, the cross was known everywhere as the way that Romans tortured and killed people. The cross was utterly gruesome. It was horrific. It was disgusting. It was inhumane. Uh, the Romans didn't execute people in a you know, sort of a nice, clean, sterile environment with lethal injection or electric chair. They chose the cross. And when people were finished with their life, they'd usually hang there and let the birds eat them. And they'd stand around the city. You'd just be walking down the street and, ah, there's another person. Or, or there's 50 people all just hanging there. This is why it is so foolish to say that the power of God is seen in the cross. Ugh. Don Carson says that he thinks it's the equivalent of a Hiroshima cloud or an Auschwitz gas chamber. At very least, it's the equivalent of a hangman's noose or an electric chair. It's not the kind of thing you're thinking, hey, let's rebrand our church and let's use a lethal injection or a... That's, no, that's horrible. It's disgusting. Why would you talk about that thing that is so ugly and horrible? But let's take it another step. He's not talking about any cross. He's talking about the cross of Christ. It's that event when Jesus was executed on that cross. That event that showed that God's chosen king, the ruler of his people, the saviour of the world, was humiliated. Utterly humiliated. And everything that is wrong about the cross is everything that is now wrong about God because the cross of Christ just seemed so stupid. I mean, the Jews thought it was stupid because they expected a triumphant Messiah who would come in and would defeat the Romans. Not one that would be executed by them. And if he did, why would you make a big thing of it? And the Greeks thought it was crazy. After all, how could a wise and powerful God allow his earthly leader to fail so badly? It's just crazy. It makes no sense at all. So you can kind of see how some Christians would want to just sort of you know, smooth it over a little bit, talk a little bit less about the cross and more about, well, it's nice to be Jesus' friend. You know, Jesus sort of, he kind of he, he dealt with the bad things, but, you know, let's move on. You could see how they might want to avoid speaking about sin and hell because that then brings you naturally to the cross and the cross is stupid, so let's skip that. There's no doubt that the message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. And that is because to those who don't know Jesus and are headed for hell, it just seems nuts. And it's extra stupid because if our leader went that way, 
Doesn't that define us in some sort of way? Doesn't it mean that we'll become humiliated? Isn't it a religion of weakness? Isn't it a religious of horror, a religion of horror with the cross? And so people will sanitize it. They'll make it nice. But the reality is that you follow Jesus and it's going to be more like Good Friday. The cross is foolish to those who are perishing. But though we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. And that is because the cross is the only way to be forgiven. As we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered spiritual death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. Christ suffered for our sins in our place as a substitute. Or in Romans chapter 5, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. This is why the cross is the power of God. We stand forgiven at the cross. Jesus was treated like a sinner so we could be treated like a saint. He was punished so that we could be forgiven. He experienced the anger of God so that we would be rescued from hell. This is the power of the cross. And this is why it's such good news. We don't need to be good so we can come to church or to come to Christ. We just need to believe that Jesus is the saviour. And it's all because of the horrific humiliation that he experienced at the cross the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. For we who are being saved, it is the very power of God. And so I ask you today, do you believe it? Have you actually been saved yet? Probably most of us, maybe all of us in this room have, but maybe not. Is it possible that you're sort of sitting on the side of the pool you know those really hot days and all these people are splashing around in a beautiful blue pool and having a whole lot of fun and you're sitting back and you're just wondering if you're going to jump in or not is that you is it time to jump in to know fully the power of the cross or are you going to sit back and say i can't do it it's too stupid well if you did that you would be in 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 company of many many people But the time will come when all who reject that message will ultimately be punished in hell for rejecting it. Paul goes on to quote from Isaiah as he says, As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. Their wisdom, their intelligence, and they themselves, it will go this way because of their foolishness. Now, I don't want anyone to go to hell. I don't want anyone to miss out on the wonderful benefits of Jesus dying on their behalf. And that is why I'm really pleased Jesus hasn't come back just yet. Because it gives us more time to let each person in the village, valley and region know how to follow Jesus and why it matters. 
But at the same time, I long for the return of Jesus and I trust that you who have come to Jesus are in the same situation. Because on that day, all those mockers who call us stupid and bigoted and narrow-minded will see that we were right and they were wrong. But that's just petty in a sense compared to those who daily are being executed because they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. We long for that day. That day when Jesus will return. The day is coming and it will be a day of shock and awe for our universe. But Paul goes on to reflect more about the status of those people who think that we're stupid. Verse 20, he says, So where does this leave the, the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. How many times have you listened to a comedian on TV or a talk show, show host, and they just think, oh, let's open up all guns blazing on Christians and make them look utterly stupid. And everyone laughs. These people who are memorialised in memes that mock us mercilessly, what will happen to them? God has said that the day will come when they will be made to look foolish. Because what is actually stupid, what is actually foolish, is rejecting Jesus. This free gift. No, I'm right, thanks. It's free. Nah, that's stupid. Really? No, and you're stupid too. It is stupid to reject the cross of Christ. Because the stupid ones are the ones who said, yeah, nah, not interested in Jesus. The stupid ones are those who said, you Christians are dumb bigots. The stupid ones are the ones who heard about how to be saved by grace and yet have rejected the invitation and narrowly and arrogantly march down the highway to hell. It is stupid to reject the cross of Christ. Now, as I speak like that, I wonder how it makes you feel. If you invited me over to your place, you had a nice little morning tea with some friends over and had some nice scones and jam and said, Jodie, you'd love to share a little devotion about Jesus. And I kind of said, uh, if you don't follow Jesus, you're stupid. And away I went. Uh, I, I suspect they may... I may not have scones again from you for a little while. I've felt that similar thing in the past. Back in 1990, I was a student at the University of Sydney. It's a long time ago. I remember there was an evangelistic mission run by the Evangelical Union, EU. And instead of slogans like, Jesus, life to the full, it used some of these slogans. The conceit of Christless philosophies. The failure of a Christless career. The fundamentalism of Christless intellectuals. The cult of the Christless family. And not only did they give little flyers out and stick them on the notice boards, they in fact got a billboard at Redfern Station and displayed these slogans on it. And I remember as a guy who thought, you know, hung out a bit with the crowd at Manning Bar, thinking, I don't really feel comfortable with this sort of way of, of going about things. I was a bit embarrassed by the campaign. 
But I think I was wrong. Because what that series of public evangelistic talks did was just simply show the world about the foolishness of the cross. And it did so in such a way that got people to come along and listen. And compared to the human wisdom, it, it did look stupid, but it wasn't. Because in fact they were the wisest words spoken on the campus of the University of Sydney those two weeks, by far. And I suspect that if they repeated the campaign today, they'd be received in the same way. But now with social media, what would happen? And all this, this is because until a person takes up their cross and follows Jesus, they will see the crucifixion of Christ as crazy. And our preaching of that cross will be foolish. Verse 21. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he's used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. In the end, human wisdom only preaches a message that fails. The optimism of self-actualization and intellectual superiority and economic prosperity, all those things are false. And it will lead its followers to failure. When we preach Christ, we'll look stupid. But when we preach Christ, we'll save those who believe. And that is why we preach the cross of Christ. Because people hear it and people are saved. But the world won't like it. It was the case in Paul's time as much as it is today. Verse 22. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. And it's foolish to the Greeks who seek, wisdom, uh, seek human wisdom. See, the Jews, on the one hand, they weren't prepared just to believe a word about a cross or about God or whatever. They want visible, concrete, certain information that didn't require any faith. It's, they, they were the prove-it guys. Show me something clear. They want 100% proof with no faith. But that's not how God works. And then, then there were Greeks. They wanted to follow the way of human wisdom. They wanted to draw down upon logic and reason and evidence. They want to be able to work it out for themselves and it needs to make sense to their minds. But that's not the way that God works. And that's why our preaching of the cross is so controversial. Paul sums it up in verse 23. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. Some are offended and you know what? Today, about the worst thing you can do to anybody is offend them. Uh, today, if your message offends me, I can usually convince somebody to cancel you and I can get someone to censor you. Gone are the days, those great days in the past, when people would say, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Now it's something like, I disagree with what you say, and I will kill your right to say it. When we offend people now, our Facebook accounts are frozen. Our words are mocked in the media. We might even lose our job. Especially if you're in that great bastion of philosophy and wisdom. 
the sporting industry. No longer do the Gentiles just say it's all nonsense. They cut off your tongue. It happened in the first century and it still happens today. But I'm not going to stop preaching the cross. Why? Because verse 24, to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is the power and the wisdom of God. He is the answer to the Jews and the answer to the Gentiles, all in one. And he's the answer to all those progressive and liberal Christians who think that they'll bring salvation by speaking about climate change or gender identity or anything else that the world wants to spend all its time talking about. And if, because if the world likes our message and they love us, we're probably preaching the wrong message. If we preach there's no sin and there's no hell and there's no need to repent, then in the end we're saying there's no need for a church. I mean, is there any surprise that the liberal churches are getting smaller and smaller? If you preach a gospel that says nothing, no one's going to go to your church. But if you speak a gospel that clashes with the so-called wisdom of the world and that gets us deplatformed and cancelled and arrested and sued, then it's a sign that we're telling the truth. And that's because, verse 25, this foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. No matter how wise a human can get, the absolute pinnacle of wisdom, it's far lower than even the kind of most foolish-looking plan of God. Even the greatest display of human strength is only going to be weaker than the most weak-looking plan of God. As Kiamper and Rosner say in their commentary, God, is at, God at his worst is better than humans at their best. Because <laughs> the message of the cross will seem stupid and offensive. And we mustn't be surprised when that happens. Because, you know, people don't like being told that they're helpless. Have you noticed that before? People don't like being told that weakness is good. People don't like being told that the human heart is evil. People don't like being told that human achievement is ultimately worthless. And that's particularly true when it comes to earning our salvation. People don't cope so well with grace. People want to contribute something. But grace is kind of like saying to someone... You're lying on a hospital bed, paralysed. Don't move. There's nothing you can do. You just need us to treat you and you need to rest. People don't like that message. It's offensive. People want to be involved so they can take credit for their participation. And that is why grace is so controversial. And it's why the Reformation was so controversial. The idea that a person can't contribute to their salvation, that is offensive. People want to be able to point to their good works and play at their funeral, I did it my way. And the rich want to be able to pay money to the church so that the priest can say, 
Well done. Your money has saved your dead relative from suffering in purgatory. But in the end, this kind of thinking holds people captive. People are bound up in their sins and unable to find any certainty for eternity. And that is where grace is beautiful. Because when we really understand grace, we really understand our helplessness. And that is why the Reformation was such a beautiful event in releasing captives from being imprisoned by the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Because by grace, we only know the power of the cross. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, one through your selfless love. This is the power of the cross. Son of God, slain for us. What a love. What a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross.